welcome to week eight. I guess that's what you say. You say, welcome to week eight of our series out of Mark's gospel account called The Way of Jesus. The heart behind this series, as I've said on the front end of all these teachings, is there's a tendency in all of us to try to decide for ourselves who Jesus is. And we all have this natural tendency because of our Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, Strength Finder, Temperament, Birth Order, I don't know. Uh, we, we like to emphasize the parts of Jesus that we like to emphasize and edit out the parts of Jesus that we don't like, that challenge us. You know, we like a Jesus that's either full of grace or full of truth, but, but not a Jesus that's full of both because that challenges everybody somewhere along the line. And so what we all have this tendency to do is create Jesus in our image, who is a, he's a remarkably easy savior to follow. The problem with the Jesus that we create is that he can't change us and he can't heal us in all the ways that we know we need to be changed and healed because, and this is important, he's not real. He's just a projection of ourselves. So what we need more than anything else if we want to be changed and healed by Jesus is the real Jesus, which is exactly what we find verse after verse in, uh, in a number of places throughout the Bible, but um, in Mark's gospel account specifically. So we've been for the last several weeks now um, looking at passages that when you put them all together, they paint a picture of what, it, what we mean, what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is Lord. And we've been looking at these different, different encounters uh, that, that show different ways that Jesus is Lord, different realms or areas or, or aspects of life that Jesus is Lord over. And, um, and so if you're, if you're coming um, for the first time or, or first time in a long time, you're actually at the end of, of this little four-week stretch. It's kind of been like a mini-series within the series at, uh, at large. Three weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus is Lord over religion. Uh, two weeks ago, that he's Lord over storms. Last week, we talked about how he's Lord over the power of evil. But this week, to end this little miniature series, we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is Lord over time. So I'm going to be in Mark chapter 5, longer passage today. It'll, uh, it'll be verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 43. Um, nothing to do but hop on in. Let's read it. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and kept begging him, my little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She'd spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe, for she said, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was cured of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my robes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and you say, who touched me? So he was looking around to see who had done this. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came with fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him, and this is significant, the whole truth. We'll get back to that. Verse 34, daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, 
Don't be afraid. Only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They started laughing at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. This is God's word. It's a really interesting story because uh, this is the story about Jesus allowing himself to be interrupted, which turns an emergency into a catastrophe, all because Jesus allowed a man named Jairus to experience something that everyone who follows Jesus eventually experiences, this thing that we call a delay. So if you are here today joining us in person or online, and you know what it is to bring a desire or a request to God only to discover that his sense of timing confounds your own, this story's for you. And I realize that can manifest itself in, I guess, an infinite number of ways. I'm sure there's people listening to this where, uh, you know, you're single and you would really love to be married and you're in the delay. Uh, or maybe you're married and you would really love to have kids and you're in the delay. Uh, or you're in a relationship that's not healthy and like every relationship, there's no simple fixes and you've prayed that there would be healing and restoration, but you're in the delay. Or maybe it's just your personal life. Uh, maybe you've recently come to some kind of awakening where you're beginning to realize how things that have happened to you affect you profoundly. Maybe things that go all the way back to your childhood and you've asked God, would you take this away? Would you allow me to stop walking through life with a limp? Would you take the thorn out of my flesh? Whatever it is. Maybe like Jairus in this story, there's healing, physical healing that you've brought before God and you have discovered, like so many before you, that God's sense of timing confounds your own. If that's your story, I'm just saying this story was written for you. We're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the delays of Jesus we're going to look at the lessons that we can learn in those delays and maybe only in those delays. And then lastly, um, we're going to talk about how we can find the strength to trust Jesus even during the delay. So first off, let's look at the delays of Jesus. <clears throat> right out the gate, we meet this man named Jairus, who's were t- who, who we're told is a uh, synagogue leader. That means that he was extremely well-respected in the community Uh, He was probably pretty wealthy. Um, He was a man of great devotion to God, but he was extremely desperate because by the time we meet him, uh, his little girl is uh, on death's door, to quote him. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus to heal her. And Jesus, along with this large crowd that just wanted to see the next thing that Jesus did, accompanies Jesus with Jairus to Jairus' house. Uh, Somewhere along the way, Jesus feels power leave him. 
And uh, to everyone's surprise, he kind of throws the brakes on this parade. And he asks, uh, who touched his robes? And he starts looking around for who was healed. And this woman comes forth, and she tells Jesus what Mark refers to as uh, the whole truth. And Jesus and this woman have what was evidently a fairly lengthy interaction. We're going to get back to that later, but for a moment here, uh, let's get away from Jesus. Realize it's a strange thing to hear a pastor say, but for just one moment, please, let's get away from Jesus. Let's get away from this, this woman, and let's try to get into... Um, the life and the perspective of Jairus. <clears throat> Up to this point in his life, Jairus has probably already gone through um, a great deal of the grieving process. This is a pre-scientific age when nowhere near the medical advancements that we have, and so Jairus has probably um, been coming to terms for a while now with the reality that he was going to watch his daughter die. And, uh, and then Jesus shows up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, this rabbi that already by this point has a reputation for being able to do things that no other rabbi can do. And so when Jesus showed up and agreed to come with Jairus to his estate to heal his daughter, Jairus allowed himself to experience something that he probably hadn't felt in a while. It's this thing called hope. And in his mind, as would be in our mind, uh, Jairus was sure that Jesus is going to sprint headlong to where his daughter was. He's going to arrive just in the nick of time. He's going to touch her. He's going to heal her. They're all going to live happily ever after. But instead, Jesus allows himself to be interrupted by this woman who had a medical condition that had been going on for 12 years. In other words, what that means is that this woman's condition was not an emergency. So Jesus, in this story, he's... he's He's presented with two things. On the one hand, Jesus has a little girl with an, with an acute condition that requires immediate intervention. And on the other hand, he has an older woman with a chronic condition that could be healed at any time. And Jesus does, as he so often does, the unthinkable. He takes all the time in the world with this woman who could have been healed at any time. We actually have a term, medically speaking, for what Jesus chooses to do in this story. And if this sounds like a joke, it's not. What Jesus does here in modern-day terms is called malpractice. If a doctor did this today, there would be a lawsuit, and a whole lot of money would be going from one party to the, to the next. And sure enough, while Jesus is having what was evidently a lengthy interaction with this woman who could have easily waited another couple of hours. A messenger from Jairus' estate comes and tells him that his worst fear has now become a reality and his daughter has died. And then Jesus, for the second time in this story, does the unthinkable. He looks at Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, only believe. The first thing, and maybe the most obvious thing, that this story is written to teach us is that God's intervention um, almost never seems to line up with our sense of timing. If it's true that the God of the Bible is the God who literally created time, 
and exists outside of time and is not subject to the constraints and confines of time as we are, if it's true that that's who this God is, which of course, as a Christian pastor, I believe that he is that God, then logically it's reasonable to believe that his timing will frequently confound our own. And so what this story is written to tell us, probably first and foremost, as much as we don't want to hear this, I think there's a part of us that that knows we need to, that if we, being finite creatures bound by time, if we try to impose our sense of timing and schedule on God, we will struggle to feel loved by him, and that will largely be our fault. That's probably the lowest hanging fruit that we can pull from this story. But beyond that, what this story also shows us is that there are lessons that can be learned during the delays Jesus walks us through that perhaps can only be learned during those delays. And so with the next move of this teaching, I want to offer three of them to you. Uh, The first thing that this story shows us, that this delay teaches us, is that when you have, pardon the beard there, I shave like a half a pound of beard off, by the way, to avoid this, but alas. The first thing this story shows us, I don't like what I'm about to tell you. (laughs) This shows us that when you have a genuine encounter with the real Jesus of the Bible, that's what this whole series is about. Let's get away from my Jesus versus your Jesus versus somebody else's Jesus. Let's talk about the real one. What this story What this story reveals to us is that when you have a a real encounter with the real Jesus of the Bible, two things are going to happen. He will give you more than you thought to ask for, and it will cost you more than you plan to give. Both of these people show us this in in really profound ways, and I think as I move through this, you're going to find that their stories are not just their stories, they're our stories. All right, first off, Jairus. This is a real simple example here. Jairus came to Jesus looking, looking for a fever cure. He left with a resurrection. That's far more than he even thought to ask for. And it's really no different with the woman here. Uh, commentaries, you know, this woman, she, she obviously, she came to Jesus with sort of a quasi-superstitious faith. Uh, all she wanted was a change in her physical condition. What she got was basically a change in her destiny, a complete change in every aspect of her life. Commentaries have pointed out how significant it is, you caught this, that Jesus calls this woman daughter in this story. Survey Mark's gospel end to end, and you will find that that does not happen anywhere else. So what you have in this story is this woman came as a patient looking to Jesus as a doctor. She left as a daughter having Jesus as a father. Now, consider this. Had she only gotten what she thought to ask for, then her physical condition would have improved, and she'd have lived another two, maybe another three decades, and then she would have died. But if Jesus is who he said he is, and he does what he said he can do, which I believe in both of those things, then what we believe is that the woman in this story is alive and well today, and will be alive and well forever, all because she got far more from Jesus than she even thought to ask. It's a pretty amazing thing to think about. That's the part we like. Now let's talk about the other part. 
It, it took me a few days of sitting on this to really see this theme emerge. <clears throat> but w- the more that you look at how different Jairus and this woman were and how uniquely Jesus dealt with them, the more it becomes clear that Jesus essentially, and this is not just what he does with them, that's what he does. He tailor-made the trials that they had to walk through in order to deal with, had, with what had to be dealt with in their hearts. So, so again, let's start with Jairus. Jairus, we know as a synagogue leader, Jairus was an incredibly religious man. He was a very righteous man. He was a very devoted man. His, mar- his, his life was literally marked by devotion to God. Now, with that, uh, and with all hardworking, religious, moral people, one thing that the Bible shows us again and again, both in Jesus' parables and stories, you know, specifically in the New Testament, is that the great danger for hardworking, religious, moral people is for a sense of entitlement to grow in the heart. This feeling that because I've lived such a good life, God now owes me a good life. So c- considering that, let me, just, let me just offer this to you. You know, what, you know what the hardest thing, yeah, I could phrase this different ways, but I think you, you, you'll understand where I'm going with this. You know what the absolute hardest thing for the world, in the world, for people like Jairus is to deal with? It's for them to see other people who have not worked as hard as them, sacrificed as much as them, been as devoted to them, or lived as good a life as them, get their prayers answered while their own prayers go unanswered. There is no greater trial for hardworking, religious, moral people than to see God show up for everyone except them. So that is precisely what Jesus walked Jairus through. Now, on the opposite end of this spectrum, you have this woman who's got this, she's got this 12-year medical condition that, you know, according to, to the way that things were in her culture, was far more than just a medical condition. The law in her day stated that her hemorrhage made her ceremonially unclean, which meant, consider this, she was prohibited from attending the synagogue that Jairus himself was the leader of. So if Jairus was an incredibly religious individual, you could say that this woman, whether she wanted to be or not, was a deeply irreligious individual. This is a woman who had not been to their version of church synagogue for 12 years. She'd been completely cut off from the community of faith for 12 years. And not only that, she'd been completely cut off from, from community in general. I, I, I discovered this when I was um, studying this passage this week, that also according to the law in this day, this woman had to publicly announce her condition every time she simply stepped outside. Because if anyone bumped into her or her into anyone else, they were rendered unclean as she was unclean. So I, I'm sure that there's some people in the house of God this morning or maybe listening online where, where you're well acquainted with shame I just want to offer, I don't think any of us, maybe few of us, but, but, but certainly most of us have no idea the kind of burden of shame that this woman was carrying around her entire life. I don't think any of us really appreciates the risk that she even took following Jesus into that crowd. That's why she, was, she came with fear and trembling when Jesus called her out. So, so let's just compare these two real quick. If, if the, the hardest thing for people like Jairus to deal with is their own sense of self-righteousness, then the hardest thing for people like this woman to deal with is their own shame. That's why all she wanted was to touch Jesus' robes and then get away as quickly as possible, but Jesus wouldn't let her do that. 
So when Jesus stopped everything, asked who touched his robes, and had this woman come forward, understand that was probably the most terrifying moment of that woman's life. This is a woman who had lived in hiding for over a decade. And, and, and what Mark says is she fell at the feet of Jesus and she told, I said we were going to get back to this phrase, she told Jesus the whole truth. That's a whole lot more than, yeah, I touched your robe, sorry about that. What Mark's getting across here with this little phrase, the whole truth, is this is a woman who fell at the feet of Jesus and maybe for the first time in her life got honest about her life. Fell at the feet of Jesus and was completely open about all of her pain, about all of her suffering, about all of her shame, about her entire life story. This is, this is the picture of total vulnerability. So, so one more time, if the hardest thing for Jairus to deal with is the pain of unanswered prayer, let's just be clear, that's not hard at all for this woman. She, she was used to unanswered prayer for 12 years, but vulnerability, being honest enough to let people see into her life, trusting that they wouldn't reject her and shame her the way people had been rejecting and shaming her for the last 12 years. There was nothing more terrifying than that. And so that's exactly what Jesus required of her. And so both of these people got far more from Jesus than they thought to ask, but it cost them far more than they planned to give. And the point is, so it is with all who have a genuine encounter with the genuine Jesus of the Bible. Based on what we see in this story, I would say, and I hope this is encouraging to you, that one of the only ways that you and I can know that the Jesus that we're dealing with is something more than just a projection of ourselves is that he deals with us the way that he dealt with them. And so to all the Jairuses in the house this morning, Jesus' challenge to you is, trust me enough to keep walking with me even when it stops paying off for you. And to those of us listening to this, who identify a little bit more closely with this woman, Jesus says, trust me enough to become vulnerable. Trust me enough to come out of hiding and to bring to the light everything that you would rather keep in the dark. And if in hearing that you say, you have no idea how difficult that is for me, my answer would be, that sounds a whole lot like Jesus. That's the first thing this delay shows us. The second thing this shows us is that God is actually a God of grace. That's a pretty simple statement, but let me, let me walk through this, because not only does this particular delay show us that, but we'll personalize this at the end. All right, again, let's compare the two people in this story. So on the one hand, uh, you have Jairus. Jairus is a male. You may know this about um, ancient Near Eastern culture, first century Roman culture, uh, but, but Jairus was a man in a society in which men had absolutely all the power. Whereas this woman, we kind of touched on this last week, this woman is just some unnamed woman. She's never even given a name in this story. Uh, Jairus, we know, is a synagogue ruler. That means he's a man of high standing in the community. He's got influence. He's got clout. Whereas this woman, like we talked about, she's ceremonially unclean because of her medical condition, meaning she's not even allowed to attend the synagogue. Beyond that, Jairus was almost definitely wealthy because of his position of prominence, whereas this, this woman, we are certain, was absolutely poor because she had spent all of her money uh, unsuccessfully trying to find a cure for her condition. So what you have with these two people is, is two individuals that stand at opposite ends 
of the social food chain. Uh, And what Jesus does is he turns to this woman who has absolutely, in in the eyes of society, nothing to offer. And and actually, not only did, did she have nothing to offer Jesus, but Jesus stood to lose a great deal by allowing this woman to get close to him. He could have been made ceremonially unclean himself. What Jesus does in this story is he turns to this woman who has zero social or economic capital, treats her like she's the only person in the world and her issues are the only issues that matter in the world, and he puts this male, civil, religious leader of great prominence on hold in his greatest moment of need. And what's amazing is when you survey the way that God deals with people in both Old Testament and New Testament, you'll find This is just always the way God seems to deal with people, as long as he's been dealing with people. Uh, You you can start all the way back in the book of Genesis, and it's just uncanny how how we see over and over again stories that proves that God's attention, God's choosing, and specifically God's life-changing grace has this funny way of cutting across the grain and flowing against the current of the world's value systems. You know, for instance, like I said, we can go all the way back to Genesis to see this. Uh, God always, God has this way of choosing people that are too old by society's standards, like Abraham and Sarah. Uh, he, he chooses people who have ruined other people's lives, like Jacob, or had their life ruined by other people, like Joseph. He chooses people who were considered unlovely by their cultural standard of beauty, like Leah. Uh, People who were considered the runt of the litter, like David. People who are painfully aware of their inadequacies, deficiencies, and shortcomings, like Moses. And I always think it's so, I mean, you, you can't help but see the humor in it, that when God calls Moses to be his mouthpiece, to be his spokesperson, Moses answers to God, I'm a really bad public speaker. And God's answer is, Moses, I designed the tongue. I think we're gonna get through this. You know, and it's, it's so on brand for God that he would be kind of the initial mouthpiece, spokesperson, prophet of God when he didn't feel like he could speak well. Or it's the same thing with Elijah, who's kind of the, the, the forerunner, the, the, the greatest among the prophets. Elijah, on one moment of his life, he's calling down fire from heaven. It must have had a confidence unlike anything you and I can imagine. About a half hour later, he's asking God to kill him because he's, in, he's dealing with what St. John of the Cross calls a dark night of the soul. There's an emotional volatility there that the Bible's not hiding us from. And then you, you get to Jesus' life. Who's standing on either side of Jesus at the transfiguration? But Moses, who was so convinced God could never use somebody like him, and Elijah, whose emotions frequently ran out of control. That is... Is that encouraging to anybody else? That is so meaningful to me. And, and you see the same theme carried on into the gospel accounts over and over in all these instances in Jesus' life. Just read the gospel accounts, you'll find over and over, there's going to be these, these uh, stories of, for instance, a Pharisee and a publican, layman's terms, a good guy and a bad guy, uh, a religious leader and a fallen woman, uh, a crowd full of hardworking, decent people and a no-good tax collector that was in cahoots with the Roman occupation and enriched himself by impoverishing his own countrymen, named Zacchaeus, and he was short on top of that. Short kings out there unite. (laughs) Um, But it's always like that. You always see an insider and an outsider, a good guy and a bad guy, the polished people and those who have completely made a mess of their lives and invariably 
what you see is over and over again, it's the outsider that seems the most drawn to Jesus and also the person that Jesus is most drawn to. They, they most readily understand, experience, and are changed by his grace. And what every one of those what every one of those stories is pointing forward to is exactly how countercultural this way of life that Jesus invites us to follow him into that we call Christianity actually is. What, and, and you see it put on display plainly at the cross. What we see specifically at the culmination of Jesus' ministry is that when it comes to Christianity, the way to the, to the crown is through the cross. The way to resurrection is through crucifixion. The way up is down. The way to get power is to give it up. The way to get glory is to humble yourself. The way to find yourself, to find your life, is to completely abandon the search altogether and lose it in service to God and others. And the reason that that's the way Christianity works, the reason that it's so countercultural to the value systems of every culture that Christianity, every nation, tribe, and tongue that Christianity has entered into, is because Christianity alone is the only belief system that is based entirely on this thing called grace. Now, that's kind of a theory. That's theoretical. But if I can try to bring this home more personally into your and my life, not only does this delay with Jairus and the woman with the 12-year affliction, not only does, does this delay show that to us, but, but what I'd offer to you, and again, I hope this is encouraging to somebody this morning, is that it's only when God walks us through delays, like he walks Jairus through here, that we are put in a position where his grace can actually change us. Because it's only when God walks us through the, the delays that we're forced to deal with all of the areas of our life that have yet to be changed by grace. Here's what I mean. I don't like this, but when I look back in my life, and maybe you can say this as well, it's usually, I'll put it this way. If our lives always went exactly the way we wanted them to go, we'd never humble ourselves. And because we never humbled ourselves, God's grace would never flow to us in deep, changing, life-changing ways. For instance, it's only when God walks us through something like he walks Jairus through here that our sense of self-righteousness rears its ugly head, this, this, this sense that we're owed a better life than the one that we're getting. It's usually only when God walks us through the delays that the deep-seated anger and anxiety in our hearts come to bear, which really just stem from this deep-seated belief that we know better than God how our lives are supposed to go and we're worried he's going to get it wrong. That's where that comes from. More often than not, if we trace our fear and our anger back deeply enough, it's because, we, it's because every human heart has this stubborn belief that I know what I need to flourish. I know what the ideal life is for me, and I'm worried that God's going to get it wrong or, or at least allow other people to ruin my life for me. That's where that comes from. It's usually only when God walks us through the delay that we're, we're, we're brought face to face with our pride and we realize how, how much we have forgotten that we are dependent and we are contingent and we are a vapor. We're a mist. We're like grass that when the sun shines, withers and is gone. And when I say that, I want to be clear, it's not that the, that the delays God walks us through, those delays don't make us angry. They just reveal how addicted we were to the illusion that we were ever in control to begin with. His delays don't make us, I, 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 maybe I would rethink this later on, maybe, but I think it's safe to say that nothing God walks us through makes us anxious. No delay makes us anxious. It just reveals how shallow and superficial our peace was all along. The, the delays he walks us through don't make us self-righteous. They don't make us prideful. They just reveal those things that were deep-rooted in our hearts. They bring them to the surface so that they can finally begin to be dealt with. And that 
is the only way that real beauty and real power and real wisdom and real greatness can be formed in a human heart by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's the second lesson the delays show us. But the third one, and maybe this is the most poignant, and I'll make it personal for you. This story is showing us that when, when God seems to be unconscionably delaying his grace in your life, when no matter what angle you look at it from, you are certain this is malpractice. When God has you through going through something like that, this story is written to remind us that it's because there is some massively crucial factor that we just don't have access to. So, so think about Jairus and think about the disciples in this story. Right, from their perspective, it is unthinkable to let a little girl die while he interacts with this woman who could have so easily waited another couple of hours. But no one in this story at this time knew then what we know now. For instance, they had no idea in Mark chapter 5 that for Jesus, curing a fever is, is exactly as difficult as raising the dead. They didn't know that. They hadn't seen Jesus go toe-to-toe with death yet. What they also didn't know and maybe this took a while for people to figure out, but, but for those that, that have the ability to study this story, we can see this as clear as day, that, that this woman with this 12-year condition, her, her condition spiritually was actually, it was actually more urgent than that little girl's condition physically. Here's what I mean. When that woman risked everything to go out in that crowd that day, believing if I can just touch Jesus' robes, then I'll be made well. Once she did that and she tried to get away, ask yourself, what would have happened if, if Jesus didn't stop and, and have her come forward so that all of her shame could be dealt with and she could enter into a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ, having the Savior of the world as her father. What would have happened is she'd have gone about her life and that shame that had such a hold on her heart would have never let go. And so from the time that she touched Jesus' robe and he felt that power go out from him, there was a brief window where that woman had to be healed, not physically, but spiritually so that she could go from this quasi-superstitious woman into a disciple of Jesus Christ who's alive and well today. When you, I mean, when you see it through that lens, what, what is clear to us is that this woman's spiritual condition was actually far more urgent than that little girl's physical condition. But none of the people in this story at the time knew that. So here's the question. Here's the question. Is God walking you through something right now that has you so discouraged you're ready to give up? or so angry with him you don't even know how to pray, or in so much pain because you really can't see how he could possibly be delaying his grace and love you at the same time. And I'll just tell you, if, if any of that sounds familiar, if any of that hits home, then this story, it was written for you. And through this story, God is saying to you, and I'll just make this personal, God is saying, I know that what I'm walking you through is hard. I know that you can't see what I'm doing. I know that from your very limited perspective, there's no way that good could come from this. But you don't have my perspective. You don't see what I see. My ways are not your ways, and so I just need you to trust me. Now, you hear that, and, and like, like everything that we talk about, it's, it's one of those things, fine to talk about on Sunday morning. It's a lot more difficult on Monday. 
you know, to, to, tr- to trust God when it seems from our perspective that, that he's doing malpractice in our life. I don't know that there's, I feel like I use this phrase a lot, I don't know that there's anything more counterintuitive to a human heart than to do that. And so the question is, how do I trust God? How do I walk through the waiting well? How do I trust him even during the delay? Because if I was listening to this, my thought would be, I want to wait well. I want to walk through what God walks me through in a way that gives glory to God and ministers to my brothers and sisters around me. I want people's strength to grow because of the way that I walk through the pain and the hardship and the difficulty and the unanswered questions that God allows me to experience now. But if that was a button to push or a lever to pull, I would have done that a long time ago. So how do we do that? And that's where we turned last. There's one more move to this teaching. And while I can't tell you, and no one can tell you, why God is delaying the things in your life that he's delaying, what I can tell you is that this story has within it a resource that will allow us to wait well. Let's go to the climax of this story. We're told a messenger interrupts Jesus' conversation with this woman to inform Jairus that his worst nightmare has become a reality and his daughter has died. Jesus decides to come anyway. And when he arrives, you can imagine what's going on. There's a crowd of people mourning and weeping and wailing, and Jesus says, this little girl is not dead, she's just asleep. And they laugh at him. But Jesus enters into the room that this little girl's body was in. He brings with him his inner circle of disciples and the parents of this girl. He dismisses all non-essential personnel, and he says two words to her, two Aramaic words, the language Jesus spoke during his earthly life. Those words are talitha kum. Talitha is a word that gets translated little girl, but that's really not the best way to translate this word. This word was a... It was a term of endearment. It's what's known as a diminutive. It was the word that, that mothers would use when they were speaking to their, their young daughters. And so brought into our layman's terms, uh, this would be something like sweetie or honey. And the next word Jesus used was kum, which is not a formal word. It doesn't mean come forth or arise or anything like that. It just means wake up. And so I just want you to consider this. This has been so amazing to me as I've thought through this idea this week. When we talk about the waiting, you know, it's one thing to talk about the pain that Jairus felt. How about this 12-year-old girl? How about this 12-year-old girl who her dad said, don't worry, I'm going to go get Jesus. He can turn things around that that nobody else can turn around. He can fix things nobody else can fix. I know he's going to show up. He's going to heal you. How do you think this girl felt in her final moments of consciousness? Like she didn't matter like Jesus was too busy for her, like she was overlooked or forgotten or betrayed. What Jesus does in this story is he sits down at the foot of this little girl's bed, he takes her by the hand, and he says, honey, it's time to wake up. And she wakes up. Now, there's all kinds of things that we can pull from this. I mean, on the one hand, obviously the power of Jesus is put on display here. Up to this point in Mark's gospel account, No one had seen Jesus go toe-to-toe with death. He does here, and he does so easily. There's no conjuring. There's no working up a sweat. It's just he just wakes her up like she was taking a nap the whole time. But what I want to focus on 
as we conclude our time together, because we're, we're moving towards the end here, is not so much the power of Jesus, because I don't think that's Mark's main point in recording this story. What I want to talk about and focus on is the love of Jesus, what this shows us about his love. Four weeks ago, I said that we were going to begin basically a miniature series within this series, looking at four passages that explain what it means that Jesus is Lord. And since this is the fourth and final passage that we're looking at within this little mini-series, I thought it would be valuable before we end our time together to compare what this story shows us about Jesus to the three that came before it. Three weeks ago, we looked at Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. And he told the Pharisees that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. That's Jesus saying that he was the Lord of a law for, for God's people that found its origin in the rhythm uh, that's established by God when he created the universe. For Jesus to say that he's the Lord of that, no uncertain terms, that's a claim uh, that a mere mortal could not make. That is a claim to divinity. Two weeks ago, we looked at a passage that showed that Jesus was Lord over the storm. He silences this, this hurricane on the Sea of Galilee with just a word. And ironically, at the end of that passage, the disciples are far more terrified of Jesus than they ever were of the storm because they realize that whoever they were in the boat with, he was more than they thought he was. Last week, we looked at Jesus dealing with a legion of demons that had taken hold of this this poor man's life, and had turned him into this just absolute husk of a human being. And when that legion saw Jesus coming, that legion, that army of the demonic, fell at Jesus' feet, begging Jesus not to torment them, asking his permission if they could go into a herd of pigs, which Jesus, for whatever reason, granted. But the point is, in an instant, a legion of demons had to flee a man that, that Jesus just liberated. And what all three of those stories have in common is they show us the immensity of Jesus. They show us the sovereignty and the power and the holiness and the transcendence of Jesus. But what I want to offer to you is you don't find that in this story. That's not what this story communicates about Jesus. This story shows us his gentleness. This shows us his kindness. This shows us that the same Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power is willing to take us by the hand. And that when he has us by the hand, even death itself is nothing more than a good night's sleep. And I I walk through this to say that you and I need to understand this aspect of Jesus. If we're going to walk through the delays that our Heavenly Father will walk us through and is walking many of us through right now in a way that we're, pardon the expression, better instead of bitter on the other side of it. When you see the kindness of Jesus here and the compassion of Jesus here and the tenderness of Jesus here, the question this story begs is, why wouldn't you trust someone like this? Why would you try to rush someone like this? And why would you ever wonder whether or not he cares, whether or not he's operating with your best interest in mind? And maybe you hear that and you say, I can understand why the little girl in this story has that kind of testimony. But Jesus hasn't shown up in my life the way that he showed up in hers. And maybe there's there's people listening to this right now, and, and metaphorically speaking, you're still on your deathbed. You're still in the delay. 
and Jesus has not shown up and worked in your life the way that he works in this little girl's life. And if that's where your mind goes, I just want to tell you, you're exactly right. He has not done for you what he has done for this little girl in this story, but the gospel says he's done something even greater. I'm going to call the worship team up and we'll close with this. In this story, what we're seeing is that Jesus reaches into death for this little girl. But on the cross, what we're seeing is that Jesus enters into death for you. In this story, Jesus takes this little girl by the hand. But on the cross, what happens is Jesus loses the Father's hand for you. I remember years ago, I heard a pastor point this out, and it was so moving to me that when you survey the prayers of Jesus as recorded in the gospel accounts, every time Jesus prayed, he always referred to God as Father, which is something that deeply offended the religious leaders of his day. It was thought that it, it was disrespectful to refer to God with that kind of intimacy. Every time Jesus prayed, he called God his Father. There's exactly one exception to that rule, and that's when Jesus hung on the cross, and he simply said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason that Jesus did not refer to God as his father in that moment is, is because theologically he could not any longer. Because what was happening in that moment is he had taken our sin on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't relate to God as his father in that moment because he he no longer had the ability to do so. He was being kicked out of God's family to make room for you and I. There's, there's nothing more terrifying than for a child to lose the hand of their parent. And whatever happened to Jesus on the cross, it was infinitely, cosmically worse than that. But the reason that Jesus went through that, the reason that he lost the hand of the Father is so that we could know when we give our hand to him, he'll never lose our hand. That no matter what he walks us through, we're not going through it alone. And that somehow, some way, eventually, he's going to work it together for good. And the more that we understand that and build our lives on that, the more we realize that the delays that our Heavenly Father walks us through, the delays that he might be walking you through right now, as painful as they are, those delays have no power over you except to make you more like the Savior who walked through the ultimate delay for you, the space between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And in Jesus, we now move through life with the hope that just as his crucifixion ended in resurrection, so all of our pain and suffering and unanswered questions and delays somehow in Jesus will come together and result ultimately in our glorification. For the last 2,000 years, that hope has had the power to transform the way men and women walk through the hardest times of life. That hope has the power to transform you and I today. We've arrived at the end of our time together and as we're at the end of this little miniature series, I'll leave you with this. <clears throat> what we've seen in the last four weeks is first off that Jesus is Lord over religion. And in him and in him alone will you and I find the rest we've been looking for all of our lives. We learn that Jesus is the Lord over the storm that he and he alone can calm the storms in our hearts, the storms of fear and doubt and wondering whether or not our Heavenly Father loves us. Jesus can calm that storm. We've learned that Jesus is Lord over the power of evil, that he can free our hearts from all the things that 
sink their teeth into us and drive us through life as these cruel taskmasters never giving us what they promise. But what we learn in this story is that Jesus, Jesus Christ is Lord over time. And though the delays that he walks us through are painful, and, and though we might in this life never find out everything that he was up to, we have the hope of knowing that when Jesus Christ has us by the hand, when Jesus Christ has you by the hand, even death itself, the greatest ordeal he'll walk any of us through, even death itself is nothing more than a good night's sleep. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, please help us to simply know what it means that, that you are the Lord. Please help us to move through our lives with an ever-deepening awareness of your lordship. To know that you have us by the hand, you love us, you're never going to let us go, and you've promised for all who will give their lives to you somehow, some way, you're going to cause it all to work together for good. Please help us to believe that, maybe for the first time, or maybe in a deeper way than we have before. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things that God's people said.